0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com On this program, Debbie Millman talks with New York Times Magazine columnist Rob Walker about why his beat is consumerism, what's so great about the Snuggie, and about his fantasy branding project. I would love to hire, like, the brightest sexiest minds in branding to help me spread the message of, be happy for what you have. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: Some may know Rob Walker as the consumed columnist for the New York Times magazine, where he writes about consumers and business. But since 1992, Rob has also been chronicling where he was when he learned that someone, anyone of interest, had died. Each year of this death diary can be found in his annual zine called Where Were You? He is also one of the creators of the Hypothetical Development Organization, which tells the fictional stories of fictional places like the Museum of the Self and the Loitering Center. More on that later. His most recent book is Buying In, the secret dialogue between what we buy and who we are. Rob joins me today in our recording studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It's also the first day of classes of our spring semester, and you might hear some activity in the background. Welcome to Design Matters, Rob.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: I want to start by asking you about an interesting common denominator that I discovered when doing my research on you. The term Latinitas fidei (laughs) consociat. Did I get that correct?
0: Yeah, it's as, as, as good as I could do it, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so
1: so this, this line in Latin exists both on a mug that your wife, Ellen, was selling on Cafe Press, mm-hmm. but it also is on the masthead of your website. What is the significance of this Latin <laughs> term?
0: The story of that is that once upon a time, I got slightly interested in the idea of how Latin phrases are used – Sometimes in logos and, you know, old school Imagine that. (laughs) Yeah. And what that sort of signifies because you'll sort of see a Latin phrase and you don't really know what it means. But it's like, oh, that means art for art's sake or that means whatever it means. And I just thought it would be funny (laughs) to have a Latin phrase that just said Latin phrases suggest credibility. And this was the best three-word phrase to encapsulate that idea. Three Latin words in particular for some reason have a particular resonance, so I decided to adopt that as my phrase my catchphrase your
1: slogan and my slogan <laughs> it's my slogan <laughs> yes,
0: and it's still my slogan and um and we we tried to sell mugs I actually wrote a sort of indirectly wrote about this because I did a column about cafe press I don't get into the whole specifics of it, but we We did put them for sale on Cafe Press, and I think we sold one.
1: Uh Uh-huh. And was that to to a family member? To someone
0: (laughs) other than me. No, I mean (laughs) one to like an actual customer. Like there were a few people who I knew who wanted to buy one. But I have it. I drink out of that mug. I still have mine, and uh, I drink out of it uh, several times a week.
1: In the introduction, I talked a little bit about your death diary, where were you mm-hmm. when so-and-so died. And then in your recent piece in The New York Times, the cover story for The New York Times magazine, was a piece on what happens to your Internet brand, your Internet mm-hmm. personality, your Internet persona when you die. Is there a particular interest in death, Rock?
0: <laughs> I mean, you know, how could you not be interested In death. It's a big one. It is a big one. It's the one thing we all have in common.
1: Yes, it is. (laughs) I can think of a few more. But, well, you know, it's interesting because I spent most of my life actually avoiding thinking about death up until very recently because I'm hitting a really big sort of mid-century milestone birthday. And I think a lot about it now. In fact, I think I might be obsessed with the topic. But nevertheless, I I was reading the article yesterday with real particular interest because I feel that so much of the work that I've done lives online Mm -hmm. more more than offline, actually.
0: I think that we all take for granted now the idea that a lot of our lives are lived online. You know, we might not say it quite that way, but it's become a fact. A lot of Personal expression happens online. You don't have to be a writer or a designer or an artist or something. If you are a writer, designer, artist, probably you have things that live mostly online. But even if you're not, you might have that function of scrapbooking or the journal and so on. A lot of that stuff has migrated into the realm of bits. And I got really interested in the idea of what, do you leave behind? What do you want to leave behind? Because it's it's a mush, as everything is online. One of the things about the online world is how things are kind of leveled. Where in your Facebook feed or whatever, you're saying, you know, we had a baby, or you're saying, I'm the mayor of Chili's in my neighborhood. <laughs> like, and it's the same. Like, it looks the same. It has the same weight in the tool that you're using. Those two facts are really disparate. Like if you want your descendants or an abstract uh, future to know something about you, you probably would want them more to know about the day your twins were born or whatever it is. More so than you would want them to know that like no one has had more nachos at your local chilies than you have. So even though the Internet is relatively young, it's really not that young, but even though it's relatively young – it's young enough that not all of us have thought these issues through but it's old enough that we've produced a lot of stuff and it's also old enough that people are actually dying <laughs> the people who die unexpectedly and that's some of the stuff that i wrote about in the stories like well how does it play out right now and what does that tell you if you read that story Does that make you think about how you want it to play out? And people's reactions are very different. Some people say, I really want this stuff to survive for family reasons or for other reasons. Some people say, I really want this stuff to go away, which I think is also interesting. And some people say, I couldn't care less because I'll be dead.
1: Right. I feel a lot of compassion for all of the young people that are living their lives through Twitter or Facebook because I was recently rereading – a diary that I discovered in my closet from when I was in the seventh grade. And I think as we age, we sort of forget that we were once really, really – probably the best word I could put it is challenged in terms of what our – worldview could contain. (laughs) And mine was all about boys (laughs) and Barbies and all sorts of really um, immature things. And I look back at the time of my life and I remember myself being me now, even though I'm, you know, there's no way to connect the two. And so I, I feel bad to think, oh, my gosh, you know, if I were that age, putting that kind of stuff out in the world, I would just be humiliated coming back to look at it 30 years later.
0: It's a tough issue because I don't know what it's like to be a kid now. I really don't know. And I feel like one of the dimensions of being a kid now is that um, the culture treats you like a kind of alien. Like everyone gathers around and says, you're so weird. You This online thing, you you know, your attitude toward it. And, and they treat young people like a different species. And I talk to a lot of young people and I don't think that they're that different. I think they're very much like us.
1: (laughs) Boys and Barbies. (laughs) They're just regular,
0: you know, uh, that we have a lot in common. But there's there's no way and there's no way that when I was 16, you could have communicated to me the notion of my 42-year-old self. It's not comprehensible. So if that's the starting point, and we have that in common with today's 16-year-old, what's different about today's 16-year-old is that they may or may not be Putting that equivalent of your teenage diary in a place that is much more difficult to er erase than the diary would be. And that's part of developing as a human, I think, is the ability to kind of erase, you know, and say like, yeah. Or forget. Or forget, yeah. Or Or remember, but (laughs) but secret away or whatever you want to call it, you know, lie about it. I don't care, you know, however you want to position it. But I think that that's part of being a person.
1: Well, what I think is is interesting is that the way in which young people communicate is, I think, very similar to the way that I did when I was that age. Mm-hmm. It's just via a different type of technology. I, I agree. Part Strongly of what agree. was so interesting about reading my diary was seeing how many phone calls I was making. Well, then I called Liz <laughs> and then Liz called Tammy and then Tammy called me back and then Tammy wanted to know what David said. And and it just went on and on and on like this as if it were
0: the most important thing. You were a detailed diarist though. You, you were – Keeping good records.
1: At, that, at that, <laughs> that very brief moment in my life. So you talked about being um, a, a youngster. What did you want to be when you grew up? Did you ever envision that you'd end up being a columnist for the New York Times? No, no, no. Did you have, what were your aspirations?
0: Well, so I grew up in uh, Katy, Texas, which is outside of Houston. You know, I think that my professional aspirations didn't happen until college, which I went to University of Texas in Austin. And that was kind of where I discovered journalism and I discovered this kind of um, – realm in which I could operate that would allow me to meet interesting people and ask questions but give me sort of a cover because I'm as is not uncommon for people in the profession that I'm in by nature very shy and I uh, have a very hard time like if you put me in a party where I don't know people I just immediately like I leave I can't Uh, cope with it at all. But if I have a structure, and journalism offered me a structure to sort of deal with the world. So I was happy to have that. And the idea that you could, you know, meet people you wanted to meet, who you were interested in, and express to some audience what was of interest about them. uh, That was very exciting. So that's became my aspiration. The idea of the times wasn't really relevant to me at all. I know people who Grew up wanting to work for the Times. That's not how my career played out. I went to UT. I moved to New York in the early 90s and worked at a trade magazine called American Lawyer. And I was an editor for a while and just kind of worked my way up. After American Lawyer, I had ended up working in sort of business magazines and personal finances in the 90s. So this was an explosive category in the magazine business, publishing business. And I worked at Smart Money, Fortune, and Money in sort of rapid succession There was a high demand for people who understood that world. And um, the Times Magazine was looking for an editor who knew that world. And while I never really marketed myself that way, that was who I became at that point. So I was sort of hired as a features editor at the Times Magazine. There were sort of six features editors at any given time. And I was one of them in 1999. And my beat, quote-unquote, was business finance. So in
1: 2004, market. you started your column yeah. at the New York Times magazine called Consumed. When people ask you what your column is about, how do you describe it?
0: Well, I say that it's a column about why we buy what we buy. And it's, it's trying to treat our consumption behavior as an element of uh, American culture, which I think it is, that should be taken as seriously as Any other form of culture. I think it's a way that people express themselves. I think it's a way that creators put ideas into the marketplace. And I think it's a way that individuals respond to the ideas that those creators present. Now, sometimes to bring that down to reality, sometimes that means the Snuggie is popular. So, so why do you think the Snuggie is popular? Sometimes that's an idea that <laughs> we catches have to on talk with about people. That. Yep. There's never just one answer, but like the Snuggie. <laughs> I did write about the Snuggie, and, or I wrote about sleeved blankets, not just the Snuggie, but also the Slanket, which actually predated the Snuggie. I love that you know um, this. Yeah, it was my, it's my job. <laughs> um, and to me, it's, that's a product that expresses a kind of, you know, everyone knows it's idiotic. But on the other hand, it's kind of like seductive and it's idiocy. Because <laughs> <And,
1: laughs> it just depends on how you define and seductive. The, <laughs> and the
0: Snuggy in particular, where I have to give it to the Snuggy people over the more innovative Slanket creators, is that the Snuggy people, I think, really hit on a brilliant kind of set of ideas and a sort of language in which to talk about this, which was absurd. And those ads were absurd. And those people aren't stupid. Or they're not that stupid. They understand that people are going to be laughing at these ads and people just completely embraced it. And people were throwing – I don't know if this is still going on, but at the time, the sort of pub crawls where everyone shows up in their sleeved blanket and they go from bar to bar all night. All it's it really fantastic. is is a hospital
1: gown in flannel.
0: It's fantastic.
1: <laughs> well –
0: A lot of things boil down to all it is is really X in an X, you know, um, X and a Y.
1: So what makes you so interested in this? I read a quote where you said, whatever people are buying, I'm interested in. Why?
0: I mean, I think it's a place where people express themselves. And I think that it's I think it's real life. When I was promoting the buying in book, I was doing a lot of talk radio things and people would call in and they would say, I don't care about brands. It doesn't matter to me. And everyone, of course, says that. And in some ways, the book is about that. But while everyone says brands don't matter to them, you know whether or not you would wear Levi's. You know. You have an answer to that. You know whether or not you would wear Nike. You know whether or not you would buy an Apple product. Whatever your answer is, pro or con. And if your answer is con, that's fine, too. But it's it's an unavoidable knowledge of this language that exists in the culture around us. I mean, it is a very powerful language The idea of Nike, whatever it is, however you define it, is one of the most powerful ideas that has been introduced to American culture in the last 30 years. And every single person in the country has some kind of reaction to it. So to me, that's interesting.
1: Now, there are times when I'm reading your work that I'm convinced that you love brands. And then there are times when I'm reading your work and I'm convinced you loathe them. Now, I don't know that anything could ever be that black and white. But what is your feeling about branding?
0: The way that I would answer that is that everything I just said indicates a strong interest in it as a language. The misunderstanding that many, many, many marketing professionals seem to have is that this implies that what I really want to do is be involved in branding. That doesn't interest me at all. Why I have not? absolutely no – it just doesn't – you know, the bottom line of branding at the end of the day is moving product, is how many of these things can you sell and at what margin. Yes. That's what it comes down to. What frustrates
1: and, me is when people actually try to romanticize it into something much more.
0: Right. I think that that's why I end up in these conversations, because I'm talking to this audience that's very skeptical that branding means anything. So in talking to the audience that doesn't believe branding means anything, I have to say, no, it means quite a bit. So then there's this other group of people who say, yeah, 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 it means quite a bit. It's good. It's a good thing. I don't know if it's a good thing. It's a thing. It's a thing that exists in the world. I'm trying to arm people to see it as part of the reality of contemporary culture. I don't wake up in the morning thinking sort of, what would I do with Seattle's best coffee?
1: <laughs> that would be an interesting thing to hear about, actually. But I can understand why, you, why you're saying that.
0: On some level, I am interested in what I would do with Seattle's best coffee, as long as it, I didn't have to care about whether or not it sold through at 80% of Kroger's or whatever it has to do. Right. You know, like That part of it just doesn't... I'm not attacking anybody for doing that for a living. It just it doesn't connect with me.
1: So let's talk a little bit about buying in. The full title of the book is Buying In: The Secret Dialogue Between What We Buy and Who We Are. You talked a little bit about an epiphany that you had while you were I guess writing the book, and it or well, actually it was after seeing some ninja movies. <laughs> and you had you came to the realization that deep down each of us is different and deep down we are all just the same. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that epiphany a little bit.
0: There were two epiphanies involved in the in the book, and I well, first I have to say the first epiphany first, which is that um, I was definitely one of these people who positioned myself as being indifferent to brands, and the big moment that came that changed my mind on that was the uh, moment that Nike bought uh, Converse.
1: Yes, and I think you were very upset about that.
0: I was upset about it, and I was confused about why I was upset about it. I read the articles, and I was sort of like, well, I've always bought Converse, and I've always been kind of anti-Nike, and I've always thought they were kind of obnoxious as a brand. And I was sort of confused about why I felt that way. Like, why, if I'm so above it all, why is it that I'm in this, like, sort of existential dilemma about whether or not I can continue buying Converse sneakers? And um, that was a big turning point for me in sort of understanding why this stuff matters. And then the second epiphany is harder to sort of crystallize in a moment, but it came about through when I was a kid, I would sit in class and watch. I mean, a really young kid, I sort of realized that all the film strips that the teachers would show us had one of two themes. One theme was, hey, deep down, each of us is unique. And then the other theme that would keep coming up was, hey, deep down, we're all the same. And I used to joke about this for years, that like, oh, this contradictory message. And then I finally realized, and I don't have a specific thing to point to, but I finally realized, like, that's the whole sort of central tension of life. We all want to feel unique, and we all want to feel like we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And to tie it back to something like Converse... It sounds sort of weird to say so, but those things are related. At one moment, Converse was part of me. Like, what was it that I was so emotional about? Was that it made me feel unique or was it it made me feel like part of something bigger than myself? And the answer was really that it resolved those two things. You know, it made me feel like I was kind of this uh, nonconformist person, but it also made me feel like I was part of some sort of quote unquote tribe. And now that both of those things were being sort of called into question by the Converse brand having this different set of connotations, meaning that it was uh, Nike. And I'll tell you the weirdest thing to me about that particular thing, the Converse Nike thing, is that to this day, I get email from people who are learning about that for the first time from having read this book, which was published a couple of years ago. And they just have missed it. And they're like, oh, my God. Nike owns Converse. <laughs> it was like when Avon
1: bought <laughs> Tiffany. I mean, it's sort of yes, the same exactly. kind of... Yes, exactly.
0: Negotiating those things and what does it mean. And Nike, I think, is actually... I pick on Nike a lot as a brand, but like, I think it's actually a great company and a lot of great people there. And I think that a lot of ways they're trying to do a lot of good things. And I think they've managed that brand pretty well, but they're super conscious of this issue. That's why you'll find there are no quotes from Nike executives in the book. I desperately wanted to talk to them about their thinking about the converse brand, but they didn't want to talk
1: well, to I it. think that um you certainly made up for it in your discussion with Steve Jobs. I actually came away from the chapter in in your interview, wondering if you were less than enthralled with him i i didn't get the sense in in your interview with him that you came no, away think, a big fan i think
0: I think he was less than enthralled with me. I think people should. This is the reason. Right now, everyone listening to this needs to buy the book and read that chapter and understand that I am hardly tough on Steve Jobs. I mean, he—you know—he's a brilliant guy. I think that it was—we—we um, did—we had—I interviewed him, and it, maybe it wasn't maybe the most fun interview I've ever done. But this was during the iPod, the early days of the iPod, and I think I got the sense from him that he felt like I was asking the wrong questions you know, people still in those days thought of Apple in terms of Apple's personal computer history. So they thought like, well, you're very innovative. You'll do some innovative stuff. And then someone who has a better sense of the mass market is going to come in and clean your clock. And his his point of view was maybe not. Maybe this time we'll be the mass winner. And he was totally right. But at the time, I was literally interviewing him There had been a story in the Wall Street Journal like the day before suggesting that something called the Dell DJ was going to eat the iPod's lunch. Now, you've never heard of the Dell DJ, except for that, right? Like we all heard about it at the time. (laughs) You know, so it was a moment, I think, in the history of his career and the history of his company that he was trying to convince, not me, but trying to convince the world that like, no, this time it's different. It's not that we're going to do a clever operating system that some Microsoft equivalent is going to knock off and put us at 5% market share. It's like, no, this time we're going to have 70% market share. And he was right.
1: Now, you said that you, when you departed the Cupertino offices, you had the distinct sense that you hadn't isolated the precise nature of the iPod's bestness.
0: <laughs>
1: I thought it was a beautiful line. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering if you still feel that way or if you really have isolated it.
0: Well, I think that what I came away with or what I ultimately concluded was and I think that this is true not just with the iPod but with almost any truly mass product and now we're talking about not just the Snuggie but like things that truly go mass is that there is more than one answer. That it's a big mistake to try to boil it down to like, oh, it's the headphones. Oh, it's the operating system. Oh, it's the this. Oh, it's the that. We really do live. You know, people are saying all the time we live in a fractioned culture, and it's true. And one function of the fractioned culture is that if you're going to have a mass success brand, there has to be more than one answer. There has to be more than one way that people come to your point of view. And I think that was true with the iPod. I think it's true with Nike. I know what Nike's message is, but you don't have to be a striving athlete to accept the Nike brand into. Your-
1: Life. No, but you can certainly feel more like one if you wear nice. Sure. You can if tap their, into it. Yeah. You can
0: tap into it on some level. But professionals who I talk to seem very interested in like this idea of like on brand, off brand. And like this is on point and this is not on point, And this is like that's not what we are. And I think that a more expansive version of that actually in the real world – and I talk a lot in the book about Red Bull – as an example of this, like, really helps. Like, the less strict you are, the better. The more you're open to saying, like, oh, well, we didn't really see it that way, but we're willing to, you know, roll with that.
1: Well, that's how some of our greatest brands now were first originally born. Kleenex was not intentionally meant as a disposable handkerchief, which right. is really what it was, right. it, that what it what it right. became. Right. It was really supposed right. to be something that took off makeup.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And like, I don't understand why people get so sort of orthodox about what the brand quote-unquote means. A, maybe what it means, you know, maybe it means things to consumers that we didn't think of. And B, maybe there's more than one answer to that question. You know, maybe for some people it really is all about the music. Maybe for some people it really is more of a fashion statement. Maybe for some people it really is about, you know, sort of a more of a technological thing. And that all of those answers, the point isn't to choose among them and decide who's right and who's wrong. The point is to figure out how they all work together because that's how um, mass brands now, I think, get made.
1: The neuroscientist David Lewis in your book, and and you say – that um you quote him as saying, "Shopping is enormously satisfying to people, and that it um, one of the reasons it's so satisfying is that it increases the dopamine in the brain, so of course we feel better about ourselves. But what is it about shopping that is so satisfying to people? <laughs> well
0: i mean there's I mean, I think on a brain level, and brain explanations for things have become a lot more popular since that book came out. I think dopamine is part of it, that it's just sort of, you know, it's like a moment of accomplishment and satisfaction of like, boom, you pull the trigger, you get something, you know, you've done it. It's an achievement. I was actually just talking to a student the other day about this, a design student who's trying to work with, you know, improving our consumer behavior, and his ideas have to do with things that happen at the point of purchase, specifically through credit cards. And I was really applauding him for that way of thinking because that's like a really key moment because – There's so much in the culture that's on you to say, like, this is a great product. This is a great brand. This is a great thing to buy into. This will help you resolve this dilemma of the individual versus the group, all these kind of things. And no one consciously – like, no one wakes up in the morning and thinks, wow, you know, I really feel like I want to be more of an individual. So I'm going to go to the mall and buy Converse. No one thinks that. It's more something that happens to the environment where – You're walking around and just like you're not even maybe consciously thinking of it. Again, it's the secret dialogue. And there's this trigger there and it's so easy. It's so accessible. It's there all around us. And you've got a credit card and you just buy something and you feel like you have that rush of achievement and emotional payoff of having done something.
1: But it doesn't last for very long.
0: That's why I'm so excited about the way this guy's talking about trying to, like, be a circuit breaker at the point of purchase and, like, try to get at the idea of how will you feel about this in a year? How many times are you going to wear these shoes? Like, these kinds of questions. And he's even coming at it from the point of view of is this a want or a need, which I, I actually have sort of argued that that's too easy and too hard because wants aren't necessarily bad. I mean, a lot of the great things in life are just wants. No one needs the Beatles. Beatles are pretty good. I want the Beatles, I want the Kinks. I even want the Stones. <laughs> I want them all. Right? We don't need any of them, but you know, music itself is like something that if some virus came down and somehow eliminated music from human life, probably we wouldn't all keel over dead in the street, but it would be sad. Yes, so but, wants are good.
1: But but let's let's just look at this for one second from a, a slightly different point of view. You didn't just talk about music. You talked about three specific bands that could also now in this day and age be seen as brands. Sure. And those things make you happy. So it's not just whistling or singing along with a guitar that you're talking about. You're talking about very specific music that creates a very specific feeling in you, which probably could be described as happiness, which I think is what people are striving for when they're looking to brands to fulfill something in them that they feel that they need or that they feel that they're lacking. I think the difference between maybe the Stones and the Beatles and the Kinks and Starbucks and Prada and Converse is that it never quite seems enough when you're looking at those types of products. That happiness wears off Hmm. a lot faster. And you talk about – The adaptation that humans have sort of intrinsically hardwired into us in that we have a remarkable capacity to get used to things. Mm -hmm. So if we're looking to these things to give us happiness but yet we get used to them really quickly, we need to keep sort of on that treadmill of acquiring in Mm -hmm. order to keep getting that rush.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: That's a pretty 20th century, 21st century occurrence I think. And I'm wondering if you ever see that changing.
0: I think it's a 21st century occurrence, but that it's one that plays directly into a very old set of behaviors. What's happened in the, you know, late stage capitalism or whatever is something that just amplifies a lot of human traits. I mean, more people have more ability now to acquire more things they can even acquire things that they that are beyond their means I think that the idea of humans wanting more i mean it's the nature of us is that get as much as you can and um, stockpile it and just like consume as much as you can now because you don't know what's going to happen next and that's a sort of set of behaviors that goes back to like life in the savanna, right, of sort of hunter-gatherer life. And so now we live in this time of abundance, and people are always pointing this out, and that's absolutely true. But to me, the complicating factor isn't sort of like, oh, so they've made us want more than we want. No, we, we, we do. We, they're just tapping into this kind of natural way that we are, and um, unfortunately, it's a kind of one-sided game. Not only because we can get more than we can afford, as we've all been learning the last two years, but also because there is no countervailing argument being made in the public sphere. There's very little sort of discussion if you turn on the television set or surf the Internet, for that matter. What you'll notice is that all of these environments, all these exciting new media environments are pretty heavily branded. They're underwritten by the furtherance of consumption. I've said in other contexts that if I could have a billion dollars to run my own brand campaign, the one I would be interested in was things you already own. Enjoy them <laughs> right. today. Shop your right? closet. Right. Just, not even shop your closet. Just like, hey, look at what you have and enjoy it. And I would love to hire like the brightest, sexiest minds in branding to help me spread the message of be happy for what you have. But that countervailing message doesn't exist anywhere. And unless the result of this podcast is that I get a call from George Soros, it never will.
1: Now, in addition to buying in, you also published a book called Letters from New Orleans, Mm -hmm. which is a collection of letters that you wrote to your friends describing your big, huge crush on the city when you were there between Mm -hmm. the years of 2000 and 2003. Mm -hmm. Um, You've also started a project called the Hypothetical Development Organization, which is essentially situated in New Orleans, although given that it's hypothetical, (laughs) there's a bit of a nuance there I'd like you to explain.
0: We've sort of boiled it down to the phrase implausible uses for unpopular places. You've seen walking around whatever city you live in that there are these sort of signs on buildings saying, hey, coming soon, this new development, right? And it's going to be condos or it's going to be this luxury boutique or something like that. And as the economy has sort of deteriorated, we've sort of seen those signs just sort of sit there for years on end and kind of realize like, oh, that building is never going to be that. It's for sale It's a sort of hypothetical future that it might be that depending on if whoever buys it. So we thought it would be interesting to – and I say we – I sort of floated this idea and I was joined in the project by Ellen Susan, uh, my wife, and G.K. Darby, who was the publisher of Letters from New Orleans through Garrett County Press. G.K. said we should do it in New Orleans. And um, what we decided to do was invent a bunch of imaginary futures – identify a bunch of buildings that have just been sort of sitting there neglected for years and years, dream up crazy ideas about what could be done with them, like what if this became the Museum of the Self? What if this became the New Orleans Loitering Center? What if this became the Snooze Tower with a giant tower of bunk beds rising from the roof, this kind of thing? Um, Just absurd stuff, but we would express that visually on – signs that looked like regular real estate development signs. And then we would produce those signs and put them on buildings. And we raised money through Kickstarter and we're into it now. We've There are four up on the street now. There are two more going up soon. And
1: what is the hope? Is the hope that some of these actually might be realized?
0: No, the hope is not that any of them will ever be realized. Um, in fact, we try very much to make it Clearly absurd, so that no one believes that there's actually going to be the Museum of the Self, uh, which the Museum of the Self, as it's beautifully rendered by Dave Pinter, is covered with mirrors and there's a big Facebook thumbs up uh sticking out there's of it. There's something the, uh, really, really wonderful about it as an yeah, idea. It's almost like wonderful. Brands' art. Yes, he did a wonderful <laughs> job with it. And the moment that I'm interested in is the moment of the double take of someone looking at it and saying. That's just crazy and smiling and getting it. And, um, and you know, uh, unfortunately, what we've learned is in putting these on the street that people steal them, which is kind of a drag. But we have them all on the site, the hypotheticaldevelopments.com site, and we document them as they go up. And it will culminate in a show. We're making duplicates of each sign so that even the ones that get stolen will be able to show at uh, Gallery Dumois in New Orleans in April
1: wonderful well at the end of buying in you write you surround yourself only with who you are and you also quote robert klein from etsy who says you are what you surround yourself with and it's sort of nice to know that you're creating new ways for us to think about how we surround ourselves and what we surround ourselves with so thank you for joining me today on design matters rob
0: thank you so much for having me it was a lot of fun
1: Thank you for joining me on Design Matters. To find out more about Rob Walker, you can visit his website, www.robwalker.net. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.